knocks you out. Now, it's here. The excitement, the adventure of a new force at breakfast. We'll call them Z-3PO's new Z-3PO's. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Forgotten Foods, brought to you by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. I'm your host, Rob Lamley. On Forgotten Foods, I'll be doing a deep dive into the history behind your favorite sentimental snacks, canceled candies, bygone soft drinks, and discontinued fast food items. For this first miniseries, we're looking at the history and the mystery behind a snack that was set to sweep the nation in the mid-80s, only to disappear before it ever really got off the ground. That's right, we're talking about the stuff. Last time on Forgotten Foods, I told you about the one and only time I was able to try this delicious, mysterious new dessert that was supposed to come out soon called The Stuff. Collector Frank Adams gave us a little background info on the collectability of the stuff packaging, and even shared his own memories of trying the stuff in a completely different part of the country from me. Clearly, there was a plan to take the stuff nationwide, so why didn't it make the big time? Whatever happened to the stuff? To answer this question, the first thing I started researching was the company that made the stuff. According to the packaging, the company was called Good Stuff Incorporated, but there was no address or any type of contact information for the company on the packaging. So I hit the Security and Exchange Commission website and found the corporate filings for Good Stuff Inc. It turns out they were actually a subsidiary of Fletcher Enterprises, a huge multinational corporation that had its fingers in everything back in the 1980s, from silicon chips to denim jeans to mining precious metals, and yes, branded food products too. For some items, Fletcher Enterprises was the actual manufacturer. Many times what they would do is buy out a smaller company and essentially take over production, often expanding the product to a larger market. But most of their business was simply in distribution. When James Fletcher founded Fletcher Enterprises in 1967, it was a copper mining company. In order to move all that copper all over the world, they developed a transportation branch, Fletcher Logistics. Fletcher Logistics was one of the first companies to use computer tracking of shipments, making them highly efficient in a time when worldwide deliveries were tenuous at best. At first, other companies were simply asking to piggyback on Fletcher's shipments of copper and other metals. The idea being that Fletcher's ships and trucks were already going to places like France and Germany, so why not fill any empty space in the shipping containers with crates full of Levi's or Coca-Cola? When James Fletcher saw the potential for larger profits with less overhead by using his existing transportation hubs to distribute goods for other companies, he mostly got out of mining to focus on the logistics branch of the company. However, he did maintain a few mining operations scattered across the United States, most notably one of the largest copper mines in America in Morency, Arizona. As the distribution arm of the company grew, Fletcher saw that some of these companies needed more than just trucks and railroad cars to become a success. Fletcher Marketing was established in 1978 in an effort to provide advertising and sales services to clientele as well. So now Fletcher could handle the marketing and distribution, leaving their clients free to focus on manufacturing. By 1980, Fletcher Marketing was winning Clio Awards for their national advertising campaigns and helped market and distribute brands like Original New York Seltzer, Famous Amos Cookies, and Lean Cuisine. One of the big success stories for Fletcher Enterprises, and it also gives us some insight into what the company could have done for the stuff, was Bagel Bites. The genius idea of combining bagels and pizza started way back in 1982 by Stanley Garzinski and Bob Mosher in Fort Myers, Florida. Mosher ran a successful catering business, but was struggling to find a finger food that would excite the kids at weddings and bar mitzvahs. So he and his best friend, Garzinski, a sales and marketing guy, did a little brainstorming and hit upon the idea of making pizzas on bagels. So the two men ordered a bunch of mini bagels from Lender's Bagels, got some pizza sauce from Heinz, threw on some pepperoni and cheese, and created bagel bites. They took their idea to trade shows and racked up $500,000 in sales in the first year. Clearly their idea was a hit, and after a few more years of success with smaller markets, they decided they wanted to try for a nationwide presence. 
but they didn't have any type of distribution or marketing experience for that kind of move, so in 1985, they approached Fletcher Enterprises for help. Fletcher Marketing developed an advertising campaign that was specially timed to start airing the same week that Fletcher Logistics had the product on store shelves across the country. If you were a kid in the 80s or 90s, I'm sure you remember that catchy jingle. Now you can feel good about giving them pizza whenever they want. Pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time. When pizza's on a bagel, you can eat pizza anytime. By the end of 1986, Bagel Bites saw 10 million in sales, and it didn't take long before the buyout offers began rolling in. The company did eventually sell to Labatt, the same company behind the Canadian beer, who rolled Bagel Bites into their Oregon Foods label. It seems the stuff was on a similar path right around the same time in 1985. I was able to track down a former employee of Fletcher Marketing, Carol Schneider, to get some insight into the stuff campaign. I got my marketing degree from NYU in 1982 and was working at a small firm, just an entry-level job, you know? But then I met Nicole in line at a Stephen King book signing in a shop in Soho, and we both started chatting about the advertising of his latest book, Pet Cemetery. Next thing I know, she was offering me a job at Fletcher. I guess it really is all about who you know. Nicole is Nicole Kendall, the creative director for Fletcher Marketing in the early 1980s. Kendall received her bachelor's degree from UCLA in 1978 and, after spearheading the now-famous Jordache Jeans campaign with Brooke Shields in 1980, was approached by Fletcher Marketing. It didn't take long before Kendall was running the show. Kendall worked on many well-known commercials from the time, including the American Tourister Gorilla campaign, the Time to Make the Donuts campaign for Dunkin' Donuts, and hired Ridley Scott for the 1984 Apple Macintosh Super Bowl ad. Nicole was a genius. I've never worked with someone who was able to just come up with amazing ideas off the top of her head like that. I learned so much from her, but she had something special, something that can't be taught. It was just instinct. Pure, creative instinct. Carol said that Nicole personally took on the Stuff campaign. Honestly, the product itself didn't look all that appealing. To me, it always looked like shaving cream. So I think part of the reason she took on the campaign was the challenge of getting people to want to eat it. According to Carol, there was a plan in place to take the stuff national. Oh, absolutely, that was the goal. One of the first things Fletcher Enterprises did was buy out the Chocolate Chip Charlie Cookie Company. It was a chain of stores that sold cookies all over the West Coast with plans to convert their stores to stuff shacks. They would have hit the ground running in California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington. We were already airing some radio commercials in the test market areas out west and up and down the east coast, too. And we were deep into production on TV spots for the nationwide rollout. It was the 80s, so we shot an ad where fashion models in fur coats were walking down the runway eating the stuff. We had Tammy Grimes, who had won a couple of Tony Awards on Broadway, in a commercial. We even had the Where's the Beef Lady and Abe Vigoda in a commercial together. There were going to be radio spots with Tom Selleck during the height of his Magnum P.I. days. Richard Simmons was going to endorse it as a weight loss product. Most of the cast of Dukes of Hazard signed up for a TV commercial where the two stars were going to be chased by the podunk police, and when they escape, we find they were smuggling the stuff in their trunk. Because of Nicole's previous connection with Brooke, she was going to be on a billboard in Times Square eating the stuff. It was going to be a huge campaign. Carol was kind enough to send me a digital copy of one of these commercials from her time working on the stuff. She had been using it as part of her demo reel for years after Fletcher Enterprises closed in 1986. It sounds a little rough since it's taken from a 40-year-old Betamax tape, but it gives us a glimpse at what was in store for the stuff. The stuff is here now. 
Also, starting a soft rollout by sending teams around the country to influential markets to give out samples of the stuff. The idea was to build buzz by letting people try it, hand out a few free pairs of stuff sunglasses, and whet the appetite a little. That way, when the product actually hit the shelves, they were already aware of what it was and what it tasted like. I asked Carol if Champagne Urbana, where I tried the stuff, would have been a good market. A college town? For sure. College kids would love the stuff. The stuff might not have looked very good, but once you tried it, you were hooked. And there really was no specific target market for it. Everyone, no matter their age, gender, rich, poor, whatever, would want the stuff. If it was a product with such wide appeal, then what happened to it? I don't know the full story. I just know there was the Atlanta thing. Nicole traveled down to the Midland, Georgia plant where the stuff was made. She planned to shoot a commercial there, so she was scouting the location for ideas. While she was down there, there was some kind of problem with the stuff in Atlanta. It was only being sold in Georgia at the time. She was gone for a few days, and then that was it. The campaign was shelved, and Nicole's office was cleaned out in the middle of the night a week later. I saw her on YouTube a few years ago, talking about the dangers of GMOs and the overuse of pesticides in modern farming. But I never saw her face-to-face again. I reached out a few times, but she never returned my calls. I don't know if there was an NDA in place or what. She just sort of disappeared. I'll come back to the Atlanta thing in a future episode. Trust me, you're going to want to hear that one. In the meantime, Carol points out another factor in the disappearance of the stuff. But really, once Mr. Fletcher died, it was all a moot point. On November 12, 1985, President and CEO James Fletcher was found dead in his New York City office. As was in accordance with his wishes, the company was liquidated. Fletcher had no heirs, and his wife died of cancer in 1983. So all interests and subsidiaries were sold to the highest bidder, and the company was shuttered. With that in mind, it's entirely possible that the stuff simply got lost in the shuffle while Fletcher Enterprises was going under. A lot of times in these corporate liquidations, brands will get packaged together and go to a single buyer. The stuff could have been sold to a company that was more interested in some other brand, and continuing the stuff was just never part of their plan. Or it could have been sold to a competitor and intentionally buried. We really may never know. As my conversation with Carol was winding down, she said something really interesting that led me down another rabbit hole. All of this, and I'm not even sure just what the hell the stuff was. It had FDA approval, but the recipe was so closely guarded that none of us really knew what we were selling. Upon hearing this, I went back to the pictures of the packaging Frank Adams shared with us in the first episode. Sure enough, there are no ingredients listed on the stuff container. So this opens up a whole other can of worms. Just what was the stuff? Has enough time passed that someone can finally reveal the secret of the stuff? Unfortunately, the answer to these questions is way more complicated than we have time for this week. So be sure to subscribe to Forgotten Foods so you can come along with me down this very, very deep rabbit hole. Thanks for checking out Forgotten Foods, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, if you have any questions or comments about our current series, reach out to us on Twitter at SpaceMonkeyX. Head over to our website, SpaceMonkeyX.net, for this episode's show notes, as well as links to our other podcasts. 
This has been your host, Rob Lamley. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.